Well, today we are going to begin our study in the book of Job. You know that I am excited about this study. We've already warmed up a little bit to it in our Wednesday night Bible study. And uh, uh, I'm just really excited to get a chance to look into this book because it really is a fairly neglected book. And I have to clarify that because... I think most people know chapters 1, 2, and 42 really well, but chapters 3 through 41 are completely neglected. And you consider that's 39 chapters out of 42 chapters. That's an important section of, of the book. Uh, that, to me, would be like watching the first 10 minutes of the movie and watching the last 5 minutes of the movie and saying, you know everything about the movie. And we've often done the same thing in the book of Job, is we read the setting, and there there's God, there's Satan, there's Job afflicted. Well done, Job. He doesn't curse God. And in the end, he gets it all back. And so that's the moral of the story. And that really is nothing to do with the story whatsoever. That's not what the book of Job is about. And that's because we miss all the middle. We don't want to read all the cycles of dialogue and argument that go on uh, between Job and his friends and then Elihu and then God and all that goes on in there. So uh, this has been a mistake. I know it's a mistake that I've made personally, and I do look forward to correcting that uh, by not shortchanging this book uh, as if we could summarize it by simply saying Job lost it all and then he got it all back. That's not the message of of the book whatsoever. One of the things that we're going to observe as as we consider it is when you consider just the length of the book itself, it is fairly lengthy, and, and hopefully you've been able to read it a few times over before we've come into this study. And in recognizing its size, that should tell us just even at a surface level a, a few things. And, and most notably would be that there's not going to be some fast answers or some easy answers when it comes to the discussion of suffering and how God rules the world in the midst of suffering. Uh, we want to be able to boil down God's way that he runs the universe into a simple paragraph or a line or two that we could, you know, fit on a, on a tweet online. And there you go. Now we know here's how God run, runs the world. And one of the things that tells you about something as big as the book of Job is it's not that easy. Coming up with the understanding of how God runs the world and how to understand suffering in the midst of the fact that God runs the world is not a quick answer. In fact, one of the things that you find when you read the friends who are giving quick answers is that those are incorrect answers if you think a quick answer is the right answer. Because that's all those three friends are doing is, well, let me give you what the answer is here. It's real simple. Let me just fill it in for you. And sometimes we have the tendency to do that for people when they're suffering. Well, here's the obvious answer. Here's the quick and easy solution. Uh, When God gives us a book that goes ahead and shows us, that's really not the case whatsoever. I think a lot of that boils down to the society that we live in. We we watch TV shows and all crises are fixed in 30 minutes to 60 minutes. And we want our crises to be fixed in the same amount of time. You know, it can all be solved with a lap at the end in just a half an hour. and, And that's not life. And the book of Job is not built for our 21st century television watching, but it is intended to really agonize about the concept of suffering. What it's going to do is explore with us the concepts and the problems and the processes of grief and loss. And in the process, we'll rework our faith and is going to truly challenge our faith. And what you read about in, in one great aspect is a major transformation in Job. 
you consider what a wonderful answer he continues to give at the end of the first chapter as well as in the second chapter. And yet you come into chapter 42 and he is clearly speaking and says, I shouldn't have said the things that I've said. There is a transformation that's going to happen in Job, even though in the beginning of the book, we're going to see these wonderful answers that he gives in the face of of the loss that he experiences. And so the book then does not arrive at simple conclusions. And I hope that as we study this together, that you'll have an awareness of that, that it's not going to be we're going to read a paragraph and here's your aha moment. And now that solves all of your suffering questions and how God runs the world. It's all going to be answered in terms of that. That's not the way it's going to go. Uh, In fact, that's one of the things the Wednesday night class is going to be about is to be able to bring your questions as we march through this book, that you can bring them to Wednesday night and ask those questions. And we can delve into a lot of those things that we really just don't have the ability to do uh, in a 30 minute lesson. So uh, those are, I think, some important things. The the first lens, I'm going to give you three lenses, at least tonight for the book. And really, as we go through the first three chapters, I'm going to keep handing you these lenses that you will hopefully use as you study the book and look through that lens and and glean what's going on in the book. And and the first lens is, is to just understand That we have to treat this book honestly, truthfully, and with the full expectation that our faith is going to be torn down and built back up. And the reason why I say that is because after you read those first two chapters, you see great faith in Job, right? And yet there are still 30, 40 other chapters that come along after that. Which tells you that there was much more for Job to learn. There was much more for Job to comprehend. And things that he did not understand and the things that the way he thought about God and the things that he says about God are going to become dismantled. And the things that he thought were fundamental premises of life and and principles that you could hang your hat on are going to be completely eroded under him as he makes these declarations and comes to realize the things that I thought in the way the world works and how God operates are not true. And that's going to be very much what this book does. And so it's going to be a great challenge on our part with this first lens is really for us to prepare that the standard answers that we may have held on to in dealing with suffering and how God runs the world may very well be dismantled by this book. In fact, I would say there's a high likelihood of it because we've often used Job with a three-chapter system and what you learn in the middle is a whole lot about how God really does state how this is all supposed to happen. And so... That is an important first lens is just a readiness that we will then walk into these things and it will shatter a lot of our long held beliefs about suffering and about God and establish the proper lens that we need in understanding suffering and how God runs the world. The second lens that is important in in the book is just understanding the book itself. One of the things that you have to notice is the location of the book, that this is part of the wisdom books. And one of the reasons it's one of the wisdom books is one of the things you can do in your Bible. 
Bibles is you will notice that it is almost all poetry. The first two chapters are a narrative that is given to you, but you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 1, the text and how it's written in your Bible completely changes. And it stays in that weird indentation writing all the way to chapter 42, verse 6. And what it's doing in the English is trying to show you that from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 42, verse 6, you have poetry. It is poetry. Almost the whole book is poetry. What you have in the first two chapters is prose, giving you the setting. Here's the setup about what's going to happen. But those first two chapters is not what the book is about. That is your backdrop. That's your warm-up. That's your setting. And then the poetry unfolds. And explores grief, explores suffering, explores how God runs the world through poetry all throughout that until you get to chapter 42 and verse 7, where now it switches back to prose and gives you the finale of here's how it all turned out in the end. The reason why that is so important is then our approach to Job cannot be an approach like you were reading Genesis or you were reading First and Second Samuel. You're not. This is not historical narrative. This is not a book that was written for you to say, okay, just like I follow the kings of Israel and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings, I will read Job like this as historical narrative. You need to read the book like you were reading the Psalms. It's poetry. You need to read it like you were reading Lamentations. Completely poetry. And that should change how we look at some things and how it's taught to us. That will affect how we read it. We won't make much mention of that tonight. But as we will come across various things that are said and taught, keep in mind that this is poetic. This is Hebrew parallelism. These are statements that are given to us in a poetic way, not just simply a straightforward narrative of this person said this and this person said this and this person said this. And I think sometimes we get bored by the book of Job because we approach it like that. Well, he just keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again. There goes Bildad again, 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 again. Approach it with poetry, not historical narrative. It's not just, oh, you're dulling me with repetition. But there's poetry in that. And to be able to look at that and break through that poetry and see the beauty of what they're saying. The third lens that I'll give you for tonight, and then we'll move on into the study of the book itself, is also really important to consider, to to set the expectations of what we're going to learn in this book. The goal of the book is not to explain to you why you suffer. One of the things that I think we've always considered when we study the book is that we are always stunned that when we get to when God comes on the scene and, and, and begins to speak to Job, that God never explains Everything that happened in those first two chapters, we would fully expect that you'd say, okay, God's going to step in. Here he comes in the whirlwind and says, Job, let me tell you what happened back in chapter one. Satan came in and he said this about you. And I said, you wouldn't curse me. And and he doesn't ever do any of that because the function of the book is not that you would come away with it and go, aha, now I know the reason why every bit of suffering ever happens. It's not going to do that. And to try to, impose that explanation on Job is only going to leave you disappointed by the time you get to the end of it, because it's not going to give you an answer as why you suffer. Rather, the book, and perhaps I would argue more importantly, 
is going to teach you how you should understand God in suffering. That's very much what the book is about. In fact, from chapter 3 all the way through those three friends to about chapter 36, those four people are mainly arguing about that. They're arguing, how should we understand God in the face of your suffering? And the three friends have all kinds of ideas of how Job should understand what God is doing and understand the basis by which. And Job is rejecting that going, no, that can't be the reason why. That's not it. And so much of it then is circling around. How should we think of God? What should we understand? And so as we study the book, then consider that the purpose for us when we study this is that we will explore God's policies with regard to suffering in the world, in particular, the righteous suffering. This is really the crux of the issue, is what is God doing, and how should we understand God when the righteous suffer? And ultimately, by considering that we have 42 chapters, And this lengthy discussion that Job and the friends give and Elihu gives and a lengthy then explanation by God himself when he comes into the scene tells us that the way that God operates in the world is far more complicated than we can imagine and cannot be boiled down into a simple principle. As we go through the study, you're going to see the three friends believe there is this obvious principle That cannot be broken, and that's the way God runs the universe. And one of the things the book of Job is going to show is it's not that simple. There's not this one singular principle that you can hold on to and say, well, this is the way God must always do it. This is what the book is going to shatter and say, no, God doesn't run the world that way. He doesn't operate by these principles and these kinds of boundaries that we have the tendency to put on God are false premises. And it is one of the reasons why if you have discussions with those who are either like agnostic or atheist and they will use the problem of suffering and pain in relationship to God, they will do that very thing. They will take a principle and say, if there is a God, then he should do or must do, and there is their explanation. And the book of Job is going to say how God runs the world's way more complicated than that. There's not this singular principle by which he must always do this, and therefore that makes him a good God or a just God or whatever we expect him to be. So that's a very important lens in coming to the book, is that there's a reason why it's 42 chapters, that we have to break down these false premises that we often have about God, and the book of Job does that, and that the way God does deal with suffering, how he deals with the righteous, and how he runs the world is often far more complicated than we realize. With that, let's read the first five verses, and let's get into our text and start seeing now how this book opens. Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. 
His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. And that's the open to the life of Job. A couple of things that we want to observe in this setting that gives us a good sense of what's about to happen as we read this great book of poetry. One is it tells us here is there's a man in the land of us. And the reason why that should be significant to us is that this does not revolve around Israel. This is not taking place in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, somewhere in Israel. And the reason why that is particularly important is that this immediately sets forward for us that this is a universal book that has been given to all people for all time about the problem of suffering and how God runs the world. This is not going to be a book where sometimes we may be in the Old Testament and we'll read something happening and what we will say is, well, that's how God dealt with Israel. And that would be appropriate sometimes. There are things that God does with Israel that he was doing because it was Israel. And he would made particular promises to them and operated within that sphere with them. That's not this book. We are not dealing with Israelites. We are not in Israel. This is just the land of us. And this is a man. And so what that immediately gives us is that we are going to read a book that is given to all audiences for all peoples for all time. And to me, that's very exciting. There are not going to be any caveats when we come to this and go, well, that doesn't apply because that was something that was given to Abraham or something like that. That's not the case at all. And so this is God's answer about how he runs the world. The second thing that we get to see is about this man named Job. The description of him, I think, is fairly intense that you may notice. Blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. Awful lot of intense repetition of the same idea, right? He is blameless. He is upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. And the whole idea is to get across to us that this man, Job, wholeheartedly tries to please God. And he does it with great intensity. He's not hypocritical. He's not false. He even shows spiritual leadership. He cares about the righteousness of others as he speaks about what he's doing for his children and offering sacrifices for them as well. Some people will come to this and go, now, is he really blameless? Is he really upright? This is not historical narrative. Remember what this is attempting to establish. The key that is being established in the first five verses is this. Job is not on trial. That is not what is about to happen. This is a righteous man. This is a man who is blameless. He is a man who is upright. He is a man who fears God. He is a man who turns away from evil. He is a man who is offering sacrifices on behalf of his children. He is not hypocritical in the slightest. He does not have a false faith. He does not have hidden motives. There is not wickedness in him that we would say the reason why the things we're about to read about are happening is because there was something wrong that Job did. It wants to drive within us immediately. He is a righteous man. 
He has not done anything wrong that we would say, this is the cause of your suffering. That's why there's such intensity to what is being said. In fact, you'll notice the blessings that are described here that shows that he is in great favor with God. All the blessings that are described uh, about him. Uh, He's the greatest person in all the East. The numbers in regards to his animals, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. We have 10 children, 7 sons and, and 3 daughters. All of these are round and complete numbers. And the whole idea is that he has the ideal family. He has it all. In fact, it's driving up the idea of blessing. You see in verse 2 an unusual structure when it doesn't say that he had seven sons and three daughters, but notice it says there were born to him. God has given him the animals. God has given him the servants. God has given him the wealth. God has given him the children. God has given him all of these blessings. It all has been given to him by God. And so here is this great picture. Here is this righteous man. He is blameless. He is upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. He's acting on behalf of his children. He is righteous in everything that we could ever hope for for a person. And not only that, he is richly blessed by God. So this is the whole setting of everything that's about to befall Job. Which in the first five verses immediately gives us the first important point to take away. And that's why you might be surprised. How are we only doing five verses? I promise it won't be 159 sermons. But there are some really big things in each of these setups that we're being given to us that should help us as we take these steps to understand God. And this one that we begin with, I believe we all know, but I think we can frequently doubt it when suffering comes. And it's this. Righteous people do suffer. Now, I know we don't always subscribe to that. And sometimes we can understand that in a theoretical way. But in reality, righteous people do suffer. We see people like Joseph who suffers unjustly. We see Daniel. We see Daniel's three friends who suffer for the cause and the sake of righteousness. We see all of the prophets. We were in the middle of studying Jeremiah on Sunday morning. We see all of the prophets. They suffer for the cause of God and suffer for righteousness sake. We see the apostles. They suffer for righteousness sake. We see Stephen killed for proclaiming the gospel message. And the most notable of all, of course, is Jesus, our Lord, who suffers for the sake of righteousness, who did absolutely nothing wrong. The reason why this is so important and is a critical foundation going forward in the book is that suffering does not mean you sinned. That's where this is set up at. This is why there's intensity about describing Job. You cannot wiggle out of the description of Job. Blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. And he's going to suffer intensely, horribly, perhaps like none has ever suffered, is what Job is going to go through. And you cannot look at suffering and say, that means you've sinned. In fact, that is a principle that is given to us in many places in the scriptures. 
Particularly in the New Testament, Jesus addressed this on quite a few occasions. Over in John 9 and verse 1, really interesting scene. It says there, in speaking of Jesus, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you see the intersection of thought? This man was born blind. Somebody must have sinned. Was it him or was it his parents? And notice how Jesus answers that. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Was his suffering due to sin? No. He had not sinned. And his parents had not sinned. Suffering did not come from sinful behavior. He says, this happened, the works of God might be displayed. I did a whole sermon on that in John 9. If you want more about that, go online, John 9. I loved teaching that. That was, that was a lesson that hit me very deep in the heart in talking about disability and why suffering happens. But the point that he starts with is, it's not because of sin. That's not why it happened. A couple chapters later, we see another situation happen. John 11, verse 1, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. At the village of Mary and his sister Martha was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister said to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus is sick and he will die. Was he suffering because of sin? No. Does he die because he committed sin? No. In fact, amplifies it when it says Jesus loved him. Jesus loves this man. And yet he dies. He suffers and dies. Why? Jesus says it's going to be for the glory of God. You know later on in the story, Jesus will raise him from the dead. It's going to be for the glory of God. Anybody else would come along the scene and say, well, here's a young man who doesn't seem to be needing to die. Well, here he dies. So who sinned? And the answer is nobody. He suffers and dies. Has somebody sinned? No, not at all. Over in Luke, we see a similar thing happen there. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Horrible scene. Pilate takes a bunch of Galileans and he just slaughters them, massacres them. This is what they're referencing. Here's what they, here's, and he answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Notice the same train of thought. Well, since they were slaughtered and died in such a horrific way, they must have been worse sinners. That's why they experienced what they experienced, right, Jesus? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish 
or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So then he tells another historical account and says, there was a tower that fell on these 18 and they died. Are we supposed to suggest that the reason they died was because they were worse sinners than everybody else who was in the vicinity? No. The whole point Jesus makes is they're not worse sinners. One of the things that we get to have a takeaway from is if we are going to suggest that bad things are going to happen and are the cause of our sin, and so therefore every bad thing means you did something wrong and means you sinned, consider how much more things ought to be happening to us. Right? I mean, we should have towers falling on us every day. We should have massacres every day. There's not an equation that's being made here. And that's what God is, is, is trying to teach. Is you'll notice that Israel had this idea that suffering means you must have sinned. And in three different locations, Jesus comes along and says, that's not a principle that God set up. He did not set up a life principle that says, if you suffer, you must have sinned. That's not true. And that's why we get these opening verses in the book of Job. These first five verses are everything to the setup of the book. He is blameless. He is upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. This is not how God ordered the universe to suggest that if you suffer, you must have done something wrong. In fact, if you jump to chapter two, verse three, notice God amplifies that when God now speaks to Satan and speaks of the suffering that has afflicted Job, he will say that he afflicted him without reason. Without cause. He's underlined that very point. That there is nothing that Job did that caused this suffering to come upon him. This was done without reason and without cause. That is a very important takeaway when we speak about suffering. Suffering does not mean that we have committed sin. And let me then end by stating these two final thoughts. Number one. May we never tell other people that their suffering means that they've committed sin. That is not provable. And that is not a principle that God legislates the world by. That's not how he operates. That is established strongly in this book. And if we didn't even have this book, we should know that. Because Jesus suffered immensely and he was not unrighteous. We should understand that. The apostles were righteous and suffered immensely. The prophets were righteous and suffered immensely. To begin to take life and say, your suffering means you must have sinned, is terrible, terrible, terrible counsel. And it is the counsel that we'll see these three friends give to Job over and over and over again. Is that suffering must mean you sin. But I hope that you'll take that to heart for number two. That you never tell yourself that because you're suffering, you must have sinned. 
it seems to me it's a lot easier to understand that in theory. But that there are many times when you are going through tragedy and suffering and distress, and you may think, well, I deserve this because I'm a sinner. And that is not the principle that God set up to order his universe by. We are not to look at suffering and draw the conclusion that must mean I sinned. That's not how the book works, and that's not how God operates. And that's why understanding the character of Job, and thank God it's underlined to us about his character, blameless, he's upright, he fears God, he turns from evil, he is everything that a servant of God should be, and he will be crushed in his life. But the world doesn't operate in suffering equals you sinned. That's the start to the book of Job. Lord willing, next week, we'll move forward and look at the rest of chapter 1 and start looking at what happens. And there are some other principles that will come to life that God is going to teach about how he runs the world and how we should understand him in regards to suffering. But may this be impressed upon your life that you would not consider that suffering means that God hates you or that suffering means that you've done something wrong. God loves you. God cares for you. And yet suffering does exist. And the book of Job's going to explore why and how God deals through that. If you want to become a Christian tonight, I hope you'll see the loving God that we serve. What a loving God that we have who gives us a book like this to explain to us so many things about who he is and how he runs the world. We hope you'll consider your life today, that you would turn away from your sins, that you'd be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins if you haven't done so. It's a great opportunity to come to a loving Father who is calling for you to come to him before it's too late. Will you come and do that now while we stand?